0: Wealth Management is not just for the wealthy. Everyone is entitled to their best retirement possible. Welcome to The Retirement Engineer with Jim Cruzan, your path to a bigger, bolder retirement. Brought to you by Caden Wealth Management, a firm that specializes in serving the mobility technology industry. In this podcast, we help you maximize your resources and engineer your best retirement through a process-driven approach so you can get the little things right. Drawing from years of expertise, Jim and his guests will simplify complex wealth management strategies and explore actionable ideas to help you protect your hard-earned wealth and take control of your future. Now, on to the show.
1: Today, we delve into a topic that can hold the keys to a successful retirement. This episode is an eye-opener as we explore the top five Social Security Filing Mistakes that can potentially disrupt your retirement strategy. From navigating spousal benefits to avoiding the pitfalls of early filing, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Now, keep that notebook ready because by the time we're done, you will have the insights you need to secure your Social Security benefits and optimize your retirement plans. I'm Patrice Socorro with your host, Jim Cruzan. So, Jim, let's get started. This is a complicated topic, but give us a base understanding of Social Security and how it works with retirement plans, because let's face it, Social Security benefits were never meant to be your only source of income in retirement.
2: That's that's absolutely true. In fact, uh, today, I guess on average, maybe Social Security accounts for a third of the uh, of the equation uh, in much. fact the the in, no in fact the the intent was for it to be a supplement to other methods of retirement so think of that as one leg of a three-legged stool where social security uh, accounts for one uh, personal savings and investment accounts for the other and then the very last would be pension obviously a lot has happened over the last 88 years uh, since the signing of the Social Security uh, Administration Act, that was actually uh, 88 years ago this this week. Oh wow! And uh, at that time, the vast majority of, of workers, especially those that work for private companies in urban areas, were were covered by pensions as well. Today, it's a little bit different. There's only about 15 percent of employees, uh, as of last year, that work in the private sector that are covered by what would be deemed traditional pensions. That said, there are still 86% of those who work for state and local governments that have something that kind of looks like a traditional pension. So when we look at this third of the equation, that number differs quite a bit. Uh, It can be significantly more than a third of the equation, representing much more than a third of one's income for those who generally have a lower income and earnings power to begin with. And for others, it might be quite a bit less than a third when we consider the other resources that might be available, pensions, personal investment, savings, et cetera. So social security started, as I said before, back in 1935, the very first workers began participating in Social Security uh, shortly thereafter by making uh, payments. And it was about three years later, toward the end of 1939, when this uh, 65-year-old woman decided to uh, retire. And uh, she happened to see the Social Security Administration and decided to walk in. And her name was Ida Mae Fuller. And Ida Mae, at age 65, signs up for Social Security. Now, item A had only been participating for several years. So January 31st, 1940, the Social Security Administration issued their very first check, check number 00-000-001 to item A. Fuller and her monthly benefit at that point in time was a, a whopping $22 and 54 cents. Now the interesting thing, and, and by the way, Ida May was a, uh, was a single um, teacher uh, and she worked her whole life as a, as a teacher. So she received her benefits starting at age 65. And by the way, that was the age upon which you would receive benefits. And Ida May lived to be a hundred years old.
1: Oh, she got and, the most oh, out of the system. Oh my God. Didn't she? <laughs>
2: Over her lifetime, Ida May received a sum total from Social Security of $22,888.92. But oh. the real kicker is the total amount of money that Ida May paid into the system was $24.75.
1: Good investment, woman. Good investment
2: on your part. <laughs> and, right. And and from that point forward, everybody else had somewhat less of an investment experience <laughs> than item A. But, but it, it's really interesting how the system has kind of morphed. Back then, it was essentially a retirement benefit for the elderly. Today, social security encompasses a much Larger component of, of cash flow and spend. And as a result, a much larger component of government spending as well. Today, it provides retirement benefits, which was its original intent. It provides disability benefits. It provides survivor benefits. And it also provides supplemental benefits or often called spousal benefits. So as a result, when we look at where things are today, There are, I think, 30-some million individuals that are receiving monthly retirement checks from Social Security Administration at this point in time. However, there are something closer to 70 million individuals that are receiving some sort of benefit one way or another, whether that's survivor, disability, supplemental as well. So we can understand some of the uh, inherent problems with social security and social security funding and, and those kinds of things.
1: Well, why don't you explain how it is funded? I mean, from your paycheck.
2: Right. So social security should be considered a participatory retirement plan where both the employee as well as the employer participate, and they participate by paying a premium which is removed as a tax uh, of of uh, a total of well, it's six point two percent of earned wages, which uh, comes out of your your paycheck. It's part of your payroll tax, and that is also supplemented by an employer tax, which is to the same degree. So the total amount of tax is twelve thousand, or I'm sorry. Is twelve point four percent, six point two percent for both parts, and uh, it is calculated the benefit based on your highest thirty five years of, of of earnings. So you, and that starts at age twenty one. So the comparison start at age twenty one, and it's the next thirty five years of earnings. They calculate something called an average indexed monthly earnings number or uh, A-I-M-E, which is essentially the sum total of your earnings history divided by 420, which is essentially 35 years, 12 months a year. And that number then becomes what's referred to as your primary insurance amount. And that primary insurance amount equates to a monthly benefit so the bigger your average indexed monthly income is essentially the bigger the benefit becomes 35 years is the the period of time that they look at and they look at as i said the highest 35 years if your work career is something less than 35 years then for every year you're missing it's populated by a zero. So if you haven't worked a full 35 years, the benefit is somewhat compromised. If your earnings period relative to the maximum amount of earnings they consider as a calculation for the average indexed monthly income, if that is also compromised, then effectively the benefit is compromised as well. The idea is, if we're getting closer to retirement, and if we have the ability to delay retirement, and and the next several years of employment might be able to replace some of the lower years, and in in effect skew up the thirty five year average, uh, which also then skews up the uh, the benefit. Right. So that's that's essentially how that works today. One pays into Social Security up to a certain earning level. That level is uh, changes every year; it's indexed, and uh, currently it's one hundred and sixty thousand two hundred dollars. So, it should one make one hundred and sixty thousand two hundred and one dollar or more, they stop paying into Social Security.
1: Right.
2: So that's that's how the uh, how the system is actually calculated.
1: All right. So that's how the system is calculated. Um, that's your earnings history. What, what determines, I mean, when should you take it? I mean, that's the big question everybody asks. What age? What is my retirement age? When should I say, okay, yeah, I'm here. Let me get my benefits.
2: Right. So, so presently, the folks out there that are receiving social security currently, or are about to receive social security, their full retirement age that is when the social security benefit that you would receive essentially kind of maxes out as it was intended, is anywhere from age 65 to as much as 67. What determines that is the, the age of one's birth. Mm-hmm. So anybody who was born before uh, 1943, They would currently be 81 years old and certainly receiving social security. Uh, They would have received it at full retirement age. That's referred to as FRA, full retirement age, at age 65. Anybody who was born after that, right up through and including 1954, would have uh, received social security at full retirement age at age 66. And for those that were born after and including 1955, for every year thereafter, the full retirement age increases by two months. So for example, if you were born in 1955, your targeted full retirement age is age 66 in two months. If you were born in 56, it would be 66 and four months and so on and so forth if you're born after age or on or, or after 1960, it's 67 years of age. And all that means is your benefit is not discounted. If you elected to take your benefit before that date, before that age, let's say at age 62 or older, there would be significant discounting
1: mm-hmm. for
2: someone who, um, Could receive their benefit at age 66 if they decided to take their benefit at 62, uh, that's a 25% haircut. That's for those who, right? Uh, And for those who would uh, be expected to take their benefit at age 67 if they took their benefit at 62, that's a 30% haircut. And that's substantial.
1: Now, 62 Uh, is the earliest, aside from special conditions. 62 is the earliest you can take social security, correct?
2: That's uh that's correct. Uh, but but yeah, you but
1: have that uh, that haircut as you say.
2: You do, and and actually if you can stick it out to full retirement age, and there's a number of good reasons to do that, and if you have the ability to in fact delay the benefit even further, the benefit uh, increases significantly beyond the full retirement age, and it increases right up until age 70. So, in our practice, as we're talking to clients, depending on uh, cash flow needs and more importantly, depending on uh, resources, we really try to build a strategy around delaying social security as far out as possible. The difference between taking it at 70 versus taking it at 62 is at least a 76% increase.
1: That's incredible.
2: It is, and it can be more depending on inflation. In fact, since the last several years, we've had a much, much higher degree of inflation than we have, let's say, the last several decades. The ability for somebody to delay their benefit was was quite significant. Between the 8% a year bump in benefit that one gets by delaying beyond full retirement age they also enjoy whatever the cost of living adjustment would have been as well. So, with the very high inflationary periods we've seen, uh, especially last year or, or 2020 going into 21 and 21 going into 22, where the Social Security inflation adjustment was in some cases six, seven, eight percent. And then you add to that a contractual bump of eight. A year-over-year change in benefit for the rest of your life by securing a a, a one-year deferral, just simply waiting a year, can be as much as 14%. That's huge. And, And it's also very hard to replicate. It's almost impossible to kind of reverse engineer that and say, okay, well, what rate of return would we have to earn on this to be able to increase our benefit for the rest of our life? and then increase the base upon which social security inflation indexing applies. It would be nearly impossible. And if one could do that, they would have to subject their portfolio to a significant amount of risk uh, with no certainty that they could do that.
1: In your opinion, is there any situation where it is appropriate to file before full retirement age, say at 62, 63? There,
2: there is, while, while we prefer to have our clients delay as, as much as possible. And oh, by the way, with respect to that, 15 years ago, a good 60% of individuals would file at age 62. That number has been reduced, that number has been cut in half. But still today, on average, uh, only about 6% or so of, of uh, Social Security filers actually wait until age 70. I'm shocked at that. So so a lot w- are beginning to wait till full retirement age, but really those that wait beyond. And the difference in benefit is significant by waiting beyond full retirement age. So w- what would be the reason one would want to take the benefit early? While it certainly makes more sense to delay, if one were to take the benefit early, it would make sense really... As it would relate to two things. One would be if there really are no other resources available, uh, there's nothing else that we can call upon to create cash flow to help bridge the the uh, difference in, in years until one were to collect Social Security. That would certainly be something to consider, and we could see where that would make some degree of sense. Uh, in another uh, uh, area or category, I would have to say health comes into play. True. Uh, if there's a significant health concern that, uh, where there would be a high probability of uh, shortened mortality, then that certainly comes into play because that then skews the break-even point in terms of, do I take it or defer benefit? And then I suppose the, there would be a third. And that would be in situations where an individual is attempting to delay And they're using resources to kind of plug that cash flow hole. Mm -hmm. But because of market conditions and such, the portfolio is now under duress. We're, We're spending on a percentage of the portfolio significantly more than what we should be comfortable with. One of the easiest ways to de-risk the situation is turn this bigot on, start receiving social security. So even though it was compromised, it may be better than continuing to erode the portfolio because we come to a point in time where there's it's almost a point of no return where the uh, portfolio values have fallen so much that it's gonna be nearly impossible to kind of rebuild off those levels, kind of a terminal value. At that point, the easiest thing to do is turn the switch, create cash flow, and then immediately de-risk the situation.
1: Talk to me about the earnings test and why this is something you should not ignore.
2: Yeah, unfortunately, uh, some folks uh, do ignore this, and it does require some some careful planning. Obviously, uh, there are some individuals who retire, decide to take Social Security. They take it before their full retirement age. And then they find that they they decided to either go back to work or work uh, on a part-time basis, which is perfectly fine. However, the benefit uh, will get compromised. And in fact, the benefit will get reduced based on the amount of earnings one has once they've opened their file and are starting to collect social security. So it, it's careful to kind of understand exactly what your earning power is, what you're expecting to, to, to do. As, as an example, right now, if one has earnings over, I believe it's $21,240, that's after they're receiving social security, then for every $2 of earnings, they lose a dollar of social security benefit. Um, that's, that seems
1: wh- pretty, pretty egregious.
2: So, so from a cash flow perspective, it's problematic because you now no longer have as much money coming in as you right. thought. If you are turning uh, full retirement age, the year you turn full retirement age, starting January first, for every month before you actually turn full retirement age, they've changed the limit, uh, and that limit now is fifty-six thousand to uh, $56,520. So you can earn up to that without uh, having your social security impacted. But if you earn more than that, then for every $3 in earnings, you lose a dollar of benefit. So let's talk about what, what that actually means. So it, it, it affects... The immediacy of cash flow because you're you're working and you're getting a bit less than you would have because it's digging into the social security benefit. But in the in the big scheme of things, it it may not be a problem because those those years where your social security was modified because you are you have now earnings, that year of earnings may very well replace a, a year amongst the 35 that are being averaged, Okay. and it may actually skew okay. up the average. So then when you stop working, the social security benefit is reset to reflect wow. a, a better 35-year average, a better PIA, uh, et etc. The other thing to consider is if the idea was you were planning on retiring, you decided to take social security, and then an opportunity came up for what would be deemed full employment, you, know, you decide to work another year or you decide to consult for a year or so. If you can make that decision within the first year of filing and receiving social security, there is uh there is the opportunity to do a do-over
1: but you and, only can it, do this once don't you you can only do
2: it <laughs> once and you can only do it within the first 12 months right and, and what you do is say oops i made a horrible mistake uh, social security here let me give you back the benefits i've received oh
1: and and oh, oh. and
2: we'll 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 do this as Hard if over. i've never filed in the first place right it used to be uh, uh, up until just uh, uh several years ago That you could do that indefinitely. So five years in the social security, you realize you would have had a much bigger benefit had you just waited and you could give all that money back. So basically it was a tax free loan that the government was giving you for that period of time. You pay it back and then you reset your benefit. Social security got wise to that. And now they will only allow it within (laughs) that first 12 months. But, but it is a strategy that would certainly make some sense. And at the end of the day, it would drive a bigger benefit if we were to just do a do-over and then reset with another year or two of higher earnings, which may skew that that 35-year average as well.
1: When you're talking about the earnings test, what income is is considered? Is it investment income or just earned income? It's uh, it's yeah.
2: just, it's just wages. Um, right. So, so earnings from the portfolio, which is considered passive income, isn't, uh, uh, doesn't impact those numbers. It will impact the taxation of social security, which we'll get into in a little bit, but it doesn't impact whether your social security benefit is going to be reduced as a result of your, your, your earnings that year.
1: All right. You mentioned earlier spousal benefits. Talk to me about those.
2: Yeah. It wasn't that many years ago that we would talk to clients about retiring, especially in cases where they would have a non-working spouse, a, a homeowner, uh, a, a stay-at-home mom, let's say, and they uh, they didn't realize that there were additional benefits that one can claim from Social Security beyond the primary worker's benefit. And that's a, that's a spousal benefit. And the spousal benefit is, again, this is for a a non-working spouse, uh, a spousal benefit uh, can be up to 50% of the full retirement age benefit of the primary worker. That said, as with any social security filing strategy, it has everything to do with age. As an example... If we have a working spouse who is now retired and drawing Social Security, a non-working spouse can claim a spousal benefit as early as age 62. However, if they take the benefit at 62, as opposed to waiting until their full retirement age, that benefit is compromised. Uh, That benefit is less than it would be otherwise, and that's a permanent compromise it diminishes not only what mm-hmm. these non-working spouse would receive, but it also diminishes what the family would receive in the in the aggregate. So it's really, really important to plan cash flow around when we need money and, and how best to, to access the filing status with Social Security. It becomes even a little bit more complicated where you might very well have a spouse who is not the primary worker in the family, but did enjoy some employment, did pay in the social security, it may very well have their own benefit.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: We have to look at what that benefit looks like in conjunction to what the spousal benefit would be off the primary. Right. Spouse is not allowed both. They're allowed one or the other, and generally it, it, it's expected they take the larger of the two so the the question then becomes do we take a a benefit early and then take the spousal benefit or do we take the spousal benefit early and then wait to take one's own primary benefit very complicated uh, in fact if you consider all the different iterations of social security when to take what and how, and and consider other things like divorce, which we'll go into, there are something in the order of, I think, 9,409 different filing iterations. So it's important to kind of take a step back, figure out what we're trying to do, what resources we have, and how best to proceed going forward.
1: And like you said, divorce and remarriage, what does that do to it?
2: This is an area where I think a lot of folks kind of miss opportunities. And, and that is to say that if you were married to a primary worker, then divorced that primary worker, you, and, and you haven't remarried, you have the ability to claim a spousal benefit off of that primary worker's status in, in spite of the fact that you're no longer married to that primary worker. And it can happen to as many ex-spouses as an individual might have. So the uh, divorced ex-spouse can receive a spousal benefit. And if there was another divorced ex-spouse who also hadn't married, they can receive essentially the very same benefit as well. It's not like the benefit gets divided amongst two ex-spouses, so you can see why we've got seventy million people participating in some capacity of Social Security, while there's just thirty million or so actually receiving what it's I would half call we're married to the same person. It. Could be well, yeah, <laughs> D- Donald Trump potentially can have three, three ex, uh, three spouses or ex-spouses wow. uh, doing that as well. So, so it, it, it's it's important to kind of consider when the claim you you can take a you can claim a spousal benefit as long as you've been married to the primary worker for a period of a, a year or more so uh it doesn't take take a, a lot and if somebody's a a serial marrier um i suppose that they can turn out a lot of ex-spouses over a period of uh, a period of time so it's it's kind of uh, kind of interesting and those rules are a little bit different than uh let's say survivor rules. Uh, mm-hmm. should a, 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 spouse pass what happens to the uh, survivor?
1: What happens there?
2: Yeah. So, uh, first off the, the period of time is a bit different to claim a, uh, survivor benefit. You've got to be married for 10 years uh, as opposed to a, to a, to a one, one year period. The biggest difference is, um, you can, you can claim as early as age 60. And, uh, I Often uh, don't recommend that. It really has a lot to do with who has the uh, bigger benefit. Uh, As a general rule, you want to wait to take benefit until full retirement age. And as a general rule, you want to defer as far as possible the biggest benefit that would be coming into a household. So depending on whose benefit is bigger Mm -hmm. and, and cash flow, there's a whole decision tree around when best to take as an example, I've got a a client right now, whose husband passed his benefit is clearly much larger. His widow, she is uh, not yet 62. She could claim her own benefit, but she can't claim that till 62, or she could claim her husband's benefit through a survivor situation. Now, because she's over age 60. But if she claims over age 60, that benefit is severely reduced. It's discounted because she is not full retirement age. So the best strategy there may very well be to wait until she is 62, have her claim her benefit, which is the smaller of the two. And then when she would turn full retirement age, she can then claim unrestricted without discounting her husband's survivor benefit. So there's a number of different strategies that are involved with with survivor benefits based on the age of the surviving spouse, whose benefit was bigger to begin with, and the period of time that we have to bridge the gap.
1: With all these cases, something comes to mind. Let's just argue that people are claiming it at 62 do you have to actually do the paperwork a certain amount of time before or after sixty-two to, to get it? I mean, it's like six months before to have it kick in. Yeah, it's usually before. not. It's
2: usually uh, n- n- they they prefer ninety days or 90 or, days. Okay. Or, or more before. Okay. Um, if you if you did it anything less than that, you'd still get the benefit, but there might be a bit of a delay.
1: Okay, just curious before
2: you receive the first first check.
1: Well, how about the taxes on these these benefits?
2: Yeah. The government never makes things as easy as they possibly could. So there are a couple of things to consider in terms of taxation with respect to Social Security. And what it has to do with, really, is how much of the Social Security is included as and considered part of your taxable income. And uh, there are certain ratios and thresholds if you're filing single, or if you're filing as a married couple, just considering the married couple situation, if your provisional income, and I'll define that in a minute, because again, that's something you'll not see anywhere else. If your provisional income is less than 32000 a year, then none of your social security is included as taxable income. It's essentially tax-free. If your provisional income is forty-four thousand or, or or less, so between thirty-two and forty-four, then fifty percent of your social security benefit is then included as taxable income and subject to whatever your your effective and marginal rates would be. And if your provisional income exceeds forty-four thousand, then 85 percent of your social security benefit is included as ordinary taxable income oh, now that seems like a really really high number but it when does. you consider if you go to work a hundred percent of your wage is ordinary taxable income if you take a distribution from an ira or a 401k a hundred percent of that distribution is considered ordinary taxable income and if you receive a social security check, worst case eighty five percent. So there's a little bit of a, a tax savings there. But the thing that trips a lot of people up is this provisional income situation, and the calculation is 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 strange. And I I I think I understand why they do it this way, but what they do is they start and they look at your AGI. Now AGI is your income before any reductions, uh, standard deductions, et cetera. So you take your AGI, you then reduce it by deductions, charitable contributions, all that, and then you get to taxable income. So what they do is they look at the bigger number, the AGI number, and then they add back to that any tax-exempt income you might have so th- this this increases the agi even further so you you can't claim poverty if you're sitting there with a a, a million dollar muni bond portfolio throwing off 4% a year you got $40,000 of tax free income they're saying no no we're going to include that in this this calculation and then on top of that the third component is they take one half of what your social security benefit would be, so AGI plus tax exempt income plus half of social security. If that number is below thirty two thousand, no taxation. If it's thirty two to forty four, half the social security is included as taxable income, and if it's north of forty four thousand, then eighty five percent of it is included. So obviously depending on household and cash flow we've got to be somewhat cognizant of kind of where we are on this how does social security shake out and are there certain things that we might be able to do from a planning perspective or an asset placement perspective mm. to kind of keep us under that threshold examples of that would be you know if somebody had an IRA and uh, and they weren't necessarily taking distributions at this point so they were planning on waiting till 73 or or later before the required minimum distributions kicked in and they owned uh, bonds or they owned other income producing assets you know it might make sense to own those as it would relate to the portfolio maybe inside the ira because that would then be all deferred income it wouldn't show up on your tax return and it wouldn't increase your AGI. There are other uh, things that can be done if somebody is a consultant has a little bit of a side business. You know, there might be an opportunity to reduce business-related income. Uh, are we expensing things as opposed to capitalizing things? Uh, are there ways to drive that business income and maybe show a loss that would help reduce AGI? are we charitable and are we taking full uh, are we helping to drive certain charitable uh, deductions if if we if we have an rmd can we do a qcd or a qualified charitable deduction which helps to reduce modified adjusted gross income so there are certain things that can be done and are we also taking and maximizing as much as possible any capital losses are we harvesting those because those can be used as well to right. offset gains so that, that's important as, as a, a, a function of regulating this provisional income calculation, which then drives drives taxation. Again, it's not as easy as what's the income, here's the tax. Uh, there's a lot more calculating being done.
1: And this just brings us back to, you kind of touched on this earlier, but what if you make a mistake? What if you sit down and you say, I don't think I did the right thing. Jim, can you help me?
2: Well, there, there's the ability to do the do-over, but it, it's more important if you realize, hey, you know what? I'm probably not being as effective or as efficient as I could be. There's a lot of things that could be done, both in terms of uh, orchestrating and allocating resources, you uh, if If we haven't started taking social security, but you had an idea of when you might like to take it, to kind of walk through that and better educate and better understand what the consequences are of taking something early, you know, the the one thing we didn't touch on is primary worker waiting till full retirement age. if If one of the the, the most important things for that primary worker, is to protect as much as they possibly can their their spouse should something happen to them financially it's really important for that primary worker to wait until at least their full retirement age because if they open their file and claim their social security benefit early and they pass their spouse will then roll up onto uh, their benefit, but that benefit is now compromised. That benefit is less than it would be otherwise. So kind of sorting a lot of those things out is, is really important. I think the other thing that a financial advisor uh, can really help with is there is some, some really slick software out there that will allow us to input our our social security records of our clients, both the primary worker as well as the spouse. And as I mentioned, there are 9,400 and some (laughs) iterations of filing. And the, the, the software will allow us to run those and see what makes the most sense in terms of maximizing benefit relative to the resources that our clients have. And I think that's a big difference between running by and discussing strategy with an advisor who's got a 30,000 foot view of all the resources and how they all interplay versus just simply going to the social security administration, because often their bias is what do we need to do to start the payment as soon as possible, which doesn't consider other resources time frames or, or interest. And I think at that point, the, uh, the deliverable, the experience probably is significantly better. We've had many cases where clients were, were turning full retirement age and they were planning on going into the social security administration and discussing things. And they came out uh, sold on the idea that they should start their benefit now is there a full retirement age whereas our recommendation would have been let's use resources delay the benefit till age 70 and uh they didn't believe that you could do that because of what they thought they heard from social security right and uh and then finally when they kind of follow our advice and then finally when they get to 70 they can't believe how much more money they have coming in the door by simply delaying those benefits, so you get a little bit different view, a much more strategic view, having those discussions with a financial advisor than you would simply at the Social Security Administration.
1: Have you ever had a client that got the wrong information from Social Security?
2: We we, we have uh, more so when they're calling on the helpline than face to face, and and more so before the rules changed. There was a, uh, a major change in social security rules, EGADS, I want to say maybe seven years ago now. And there were some other filing opportunities that were available prior to that, where the spouse, as an example, the, the, the primary worker could file and then defer taking their benefit. And then once their file was open, the, the, the spouse, the non-working spouse, could enjoy a spousal benefit all the while the primary worker would delay their benefit and take it later. Well, we understood those rules and we understood the strategy, but when they would go to social security, social security just didn't understand that. Like, well, if you're if you're filing, then you're, you're taking your benefit. No, no, no. We, we don't want to take our benefit. Well, you can't do that. Well, yes, in fact, you can do that. Today, it's, it's much less confusing. Because there's no longer that strategy available. But those clients who did that under our guidance, which, which was different than the original recommendation from social security, uh, certainly are much happier as a result of that. Uh,
1: I would think so. <laughs>
2: yeah. I mean, if, if a couple does things correctly, you can easily see 70, 80, as much as 100,000 a year from social security benefits depending on how much your primary insurance amount would have been in the first place. Yeah, it's it's amazing.
1: Well, Jim, as we wrap up, that is so much information. That is a great amount of wonderful information. It is really a, a labyrinth out there, though, in Social Security. I, I think you really do. You would benefit by having someone help you through the process. I would agree. All right. So when it comes to Social Security filing... Our choices do have a profound effect on our retirement journey. According to these top five Social Security filing mistakes, well, if you avoid them, you empower yourself for what lies ahead. Whether it's early filing intricacies, enhancing spousal benefits, or maneuvering through survivor benefits, you now have the understanding to make some well-formed decisions. Also, uh, most importantly, perhaps, if you still have questions, seek personalized professional guidance. And be sure to subscribe to the Retirement Engineer podcast so you don't miss future episodes. And of course, follow at Caden Wealth on social. Let us know what you think in the comments. Please share topics you'd like us to discuss in future episodes too. Following and sharing this podcast helps our small show make a larger impact. Thanks for being with us.
0: Thank you for listening to The Retirement Engineer with Jim Cruzan. Click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available visit our website at www.cadenwealth.com or give us a call at 800-638-6900. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of Jim Cruzan and this episode's guests, not necessarily those of Caden Wealth Management. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only.